0: Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an economist whose work focuses on directing technological innovation towards sustainable and inclusive growth.
1: These massive cash piles are being used to partly at least, solve different problems that we have in society, but in this very random pet project kind of way, I don't think that advances inclusive growth, but also is bad for innovation.
0: That was Mariana Mazzucato, founder of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London. She came into the FT recently to talk to me about the role governments have to play in directing technological change. So, Mariana, it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landings. What do you think we can learn from the original moonshot when it comes to innovation today?
1: I think we can fundamentally learn how to do policy differently, how to organize public structures differently. If you think about the moonshot, it was addressing a challenge bigger than just going to the moon. It was basically the space race, and we have many challenges today. But the moonshot was very concrete. It was to get to the moon and back again in one generation. It was a very concrete goal that you could actually answer yes or no. Did we achieve it? Did we not? And to do it, lots of different sectors had to get involved. It wasn't just aeronautics. It was also nutrition, materials... And then, on top of that, lots of different projects had to be fueled and nurtured and welcomed, of which most failed. So, the key lessons here are. Be imaginative, you know, really focus on the big challenges that we have ahead, but turn them into concrete goals, but get as many different sectors involved. Don't make it sort of a sectoral policy area. And transform government instruments, whether it's procurement or price schemes, to really fuel that bottom-up experimentation, all those projects, but don't fear failure. You will have to do trial and error and error and error.
0: You also have to mobilize enormous resources, don't you? I mean, the amount of money that was spent on NASA at that time was staggering.
1: But they didn't worry about that. That was really interesting they didn't actually say okay this is how much money we have let's see what we can do with it they said this is what we're going to do and we'll find the money which is by the way what they do when they go to war what governments around the world do when they go to war i've never heard any government say oh nope we can't go to (laughs) afghanistan we don't have any tax revenue (laughs) so what's interesting is that when problems are seen as being really urgent the money is often found now given that all that innovation had to then happen in order to get there If you combine it with a really active and dynamic innovation system, this fuels growth. So even though it costs money, it also fuels long-term GDP growth. And what governments actually often worry about is debt to GDP. And so that actually, ironically, can go down if you fuel growth along the way to such an ambitious and costly project.
0: One of the reasons why the space race became so urgent was because there was this superpower competition. Do you think we're seeing something similar now between China and the U.S.? Both of them are wrestling for technological superiority. Would that be a good thing for innovation, do you think, in a strange kind of way?
1: Well, I think China definitely is. I mean, China spending $1.7 trillion worth right now in greening its economy, and it definitely sees pollution as the most urgent problem it has. So many kids are becoming sick because of the pollution in the air in China. And so transforming the urgent problem of pollution into an innovation priority if you look at what this money is being spent on in China, it's not just renewable energy, it's also energy-friendly technologies. What's interesting in the current situation in the U.S. is I don't really see a big kind of investment-led growth strategy being put into place in order to compete with China. I see more of a mercantilistic kind of policy of trade wars and you know, building walls and just thinking about exchange rates and, again, trade issues, which is really what the mercantilists worried about in the 1600s. actually I write about this in my <laughs> recent book on sure. value. And also the attack on Huawei is quite interesting because it is one of the most competitive and, you know, technologically rich companies in the world. And so by going after Huawei, it's a good way to go after China's competitiveness. But the real question in the U.S. should be how could we build the next Apples, the next Googles, the next Huawei's? And for that to happen, you need to really invest and to think about how did the U.S. lead in the past? How did it become so innovative? Where did Silicon Valley come from? And that is the moonshot story.
0: So do you think in a strange kind of way that the Chinese have learned the lessons of the moonshot program better than the Americans have?
1: Yes, I mean, definitely compared to the current state of the U.S., I think I often say that China has learned if you want, even just where Silicon Valley came from, at a moment in history where the U.S. is unlearning it. But, you know, even in the recent decades, what's interesting in the U.S. is that they often talk Jefferson but act Hamilton in Mm. terms of active industrial policy. Can you say
0: what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Jefferson was notably much more about the free market. Hamilton was very much for an active industrial policy and was one of the founders in some ways of U.S. industrial policy. And so the problem is that if you don't actually have organizations like NASA, like DARPA, but also active procurement policy, which allows startups to scale up, and even a mission, whether it's the moonshot or fighting pollution, which really brings together all these different activities on the ground in order to actually solve a goal, and funding properly the innovation system itself on both the supply side and the demand side, then you don't really get that full power of innovation and the full deployment and diffusion of also existing technology. And so the problem is that when the US doesn't actually talk explicitly, about the source of its competitiveness, then there's also less learning that occurs between departments. So the examples that you and I are talking about really come more from the Department of Defense. And we really need to be asking, what are the lessons, not only for China and other countries, but for the Department of Health, for the Department of Energy? And it's interesting, for example, that ARPA-E, which is a sister organization of DARPA that funded the internet, its budget is much, much, much smaller. So the way that we currently frame the urgent needs around the environment have been less successful and fostering and galvanizing the funds and the activities needed to really fight climate change.
0: Just before we move on to that issue of climate change, one of the arguments about the Moon program was that it span off these whole new industries and inventions and innovations that no one clearly thought of at the time. And everyone points to the example of Teflon as being one example. But is that right as an economist? Do you think it is right to say that there are lots of unexpected benefits from the amount of money that went into the whole R&D program behind NASA?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that's something that we actually learn when we look at innovation in almost every sector, including pharmaceuticals. Many of the advances come unexpectedly. It's serendipitous. Even Viagra, I often remind people, came unexpectedly in terms of what it ended up doing. It was originally for the heart. And that's very normal. And so, you know, this is the whole point of thinking about missions. So the internet was a solution to a problem. But... But... But the point was not to come up with the Internet. The problem was to solve the problem. And GPS, similarly, they wanted to know how to aim the ballistic missiles much more precisely. And GPS was the solution. There was other solutions that could have come about. And so that's really key in terms of designing policy in such a way that really fosters those bottom-up solutions of which some succeed and some fail. We know about the successes because we're using them. We're using the Internet. We're using GPS. But for each of those, there was many other variations of those technologies.
0: The biggest challenge of our time clearly is climate change. How can we apply moonshot thinking to help solve this problem?
1: So, first of all, I don't think we should restrict the conversation just to climate change. We should really be looking at the sustainable development goals, of which many are actually related to climate and sustainability. But it's a really exciting time in history where over 100 countries have actually agreed on these 17 goals. Underneath them, there's 169 targets. And moonshots and missions are somewhere in between those concrete kind of almost project-level goals, the 169 targets, and these very broad challenges, which are the Sustainable Development Goals. But they've been agreed on through a stakeholder kind of governance and communities coming together. It wasn't fed top-down, say, through the United Nations. And that's really important. And also reflecting back to the moonshot because the moonshot really was quite top-down. It was Kennedy and his buddies (laughs) deciding this was a great thing to do, and they definitely organized it in a very ambitious way that galvanized interest in students and schools who wanted to study STEM subjects again, the famous janitor NASA, who also was very proud to be part of the project, but it was top-down. And what's more interesting today is to think, how can we really involve citizens and different groups of citizens in the framing of the missions themselves Also the labor movement, labor unions can get involved in that process because otherwise they might just be worried about defending workers against the transition from brown industry to green industry. So there is a concept, for example, of the just transition, but trade unions were not at the table defining the transition in the first place. So climate change is key. It's definitely the biggest challenge we have today. The IPCC report told us we have 12 years left, but that's a broad challenge. Turning it into a mission requires... Thinking of concrete goals, for example, with the work that I've been doing recently with the European Commission, we said 100 carbon-neutral cities across Europe. <laughs> and you can actually say, yes or no, did you achieve it? Are you getting any closer after 5, 7, or 10 years? If not, turn the tap off and start doing something else. This also, by the way, is a lesson from the moonshot. The organizations like NASA or later DARPA have often been just as good at turning the tap on as turning the tap off. Mm -hmm. And turning the tap off means being flexible, adaptable, monitoring the process, having long-termism. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but also knowing, you know, when is it going wrong?
0: We have to pivot, do something differently. How do you get the public involved? How do you get the civic engagement in setting missions and then helping to implement them?
1: Well, as an economist, this definitely is not our area of expertise. (laughs) But what I have to say about it as an economist is that it requires changing how we think about markets markets shouldn't just be fixed. We can't look at the climate problem as fixing the negative externality market failure, but really co-creating and co-shaping the market. And that requires the public sector, the private sector, and the third sector, of which trade unions, for example, are part of that, but also civil society organizations to come to the table to really both talk, but also to invest, to innovate, to think creatively about what kind of markets are we actually going for. So if we want inclusive and sustainable growth, that's going to require a particular type of market. And so, you know, there are lessons around this. So, for example, in Germany with the Energiewende policy, that really came out of a struggle also with the Green Movement, which brought sustainability to the fore of the political discussion for many years, for decades. And then Merkel, a politician, was able to encapsulate that into a concrete mission for the country. And there what was interesting was, again, that it really required lots of different sectors to innovate, including the old sectors like steel. So the steel industry through the Energy Energiewende emission, which was co-created through a green movement, at least originally, required steel to lower its material content and didn't tell it how it to do it, So that's the bottom-up bit, but, you know, it ended up happening through repurpose, reuse, and recycle. And this is also really, really interesting because this means, from the economics perspective, that we need to think of this market co-creation also in terms of changing how public and private interact. This is not about being business-friendly or simply nudging businesses, but really creating some strong conditions attached to the huge public investments that many industries receive, whether it's in energy or in pharmaceuticals. Those conditions should be about transformation towards reaching public goals.
0: Now, this is quite a long way ahead of the public debate, which, to crudely summarize, I would say, really was still in the world of a binary division between the market and the state, between the public sector and the private sector. Government is part of the problem. It's not part of the solution mentality. Do you think we've moved beyond that now? How can we get the market and the state working to co-create markets, as you suggest.
1: I believe in examples. And so there's some parts of the world and some organizations and projects which I think exemplify a new narrative and a new framework and something different from the old style, the state versus business and at best, you know, de-risk and facilitate private activity. So an example of this would be what's happening today in Barcelona, where The mayor, Ada Colau, with her digital team is really thinking about how to change the relationships. It's not just about taxing the tech companies or worrying about privacy, but really asking how can we actively co-create the value in a city whereby the data that's generated every time you click on a city mapper or anything actually goes back to some sort of publicly governed repository. And by public, I don't mean the state, but really public through also different types of organizations, which then fuels innovation, which benefits citizens, for example, in public transport. And that's really interesting because that means changing how public and private can actually be working together to create a more symbiotic partnership, as opposed to what we've often seen, unfortunately, to be a bit of a parasitic partnership, especially in the case of data where the technology itself to retrieve the data, internet GPS was funded by the state. The data is of the citizens because they are creating data every time they're clicking, really allowing the citizens to benefit from that. And some are also looking at how to make it a monetary reward. I think that might be interesting, but what's more interesting is how to create also more collective rewards that, for example, improve the cities that we live in.
0: Now, some of that debate ends up with people arguing for data taxes that the Googles and the Facebooks of this world are amassing enormous data sets about all of us, which is of enormous public value as well. Do you think there's an argument for taxing them on the basis of their data in the sense of asking them to share their data sets in the way that, say, German insurance companies do to enable new competitors to come into the market Is that a useful way of thinking about the assets that they have created and that they hold and can be used for broader purposes?
1: So I think this question has to be tackled on multiple fronts. There's no one solution. I think the first one is not to use the word that you've just used, which is (laughs) the kind of wealth or data that they've created, because the point is it's been collectively created. And that's part of the reason why we really need to be renegotiating the deal. Because if it really was that these companies were just amazing, you know, geniuses that just did everything on their own, then it's harder to say, you know, why you should be able to regulate them because that might stifle this amazing innovation. As soon as you say the innovation actually has fundamentally come from a much wider set of social structures and different types of actors, then you, by definition, have to pause for a minute worrying about the reproduction of that system and ask, are we then siphoning out the rewards from what in the end was a collectively created system into just fueling profits for a subset of the actors. And of course, they are innovative. But the question is, where are the other structures that they have benefited from? And are we sure that we're also funneling funds back into those? But also, you know, innovation has both a rate and a direction. So that directionality of the innovation, which the moonshot was an example. This wasn't just, let's just fund a bunch of things in space and see what happens. It was, let's get to the moon. That was a direction. We could be trying to create a system whereby these very large funds that are going into innovation from the public sector are more directed to actually solve public goals. So we don't need more Twitters necessarily. (laughs) We need much greater solutions, more ambitious solutions, again, to problems underneath those 169 targets for the sustainable development goals. Now, we can't tell companies what to do, but when there's such large public funds going into the system, then of course you can. And so that's one issue. Another one, of course, they should be taxed. But the question is, in terms of thinking about the competitiveness of the... Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams. Who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex? Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at coriant.com. That's coriant.com. Sectors. We should be careful not to reduce the question down to some sort of quantity theory of competition that is just about their size, and we have to break them up. The real question is. How are the profits being earned and is there a difference between profits and rent? Rent meaning kind of just value extraction, profits, let's call it value creation. And so one could argue that the power of many of these companies like Google is in some ways stifling the innovation more on the supply side, on the actual product market. You could argue there is quite a bit of competitiveness. And so the real question is how are they stifling innovation of the suppliers who then, you know, for example, the products that they're producing that Google is showing on the Internet, some products are being shown more clearly, others are sort of being hidden. What kind of power is being implemented there and how can any regulation of the sector be really focused on nurturing the competitiveness across the whole value chain.
0: So how do we do that? How do we design a market for these new tech giants?
1: Well, the first thing I think is how you design it requires really changing lots of the tools. I mean, in this sector, for example... Patents are not such a big thing as they are in some other sectors, but any relationship between public and private can be redesigned. So I often, just to give that example, do mention patents because patents, they are being abused. They're too wide. They're too upstream. They're too strong. And so they're used for strategic reasons just to kind of carve out an area which then stifles innovation. And so what we need to be doing is at each point of the way be looking at it as a design question, And so this is the issue that the public sector has too often thought about the policy in an area like today with the tech companies is just fixing the problem, almost waiting for it to happen (laughs) and then fixing it afterwards, whether it's through privacy issues or taxation. So given that there is lots of investment in innovation by these different actors, the question is, do we even understand where this innovation is going? And if we don't, How can it be, though, that with all these public funds, we don't have that kind of smartness within these public institutions? Let me just give you another example in a different sector of what I mean. Fracking and shale gas was basically all funded by the public sector. Today, there's huge debates about the effects that that's having. Mm -hmm. But because we didn't admit that the government is an active investor, not just a lender, not just a regulator, not just a de-risker, but actually invests and fundamentally also affects the direction of innovation, that debate in our democracies, in our civil society, wasn't had about fracking ex-ante. We waited ex-post. And it's a very similar thing that's happening today with tech. The tech was funded fundamentally by the public sector, and then we wait for it to go wrong to fix it. So that co-designing, co-creation, co-shaping framework of policy is what needs to be redesigned. We need the tools for that within government.
0: One way of doing that, you explained in your book, The Entrepreneurial State, is to have a clawback mechanism so that when companies co-create value with the public sector, that the people in the public sector who help create that value also get a better return from that investment that they've made. How would that work in practice?
1: I mean, basically, the umbrella point is you want to be socializing not just risks, but also rewards. How you socialize the rewards isn't just a monetary issue. It's not about getting some money out of the system for the bureaucrats. (laughs) It's about making sure you're actively co-creating the conditions that also create, for example, inclusive growth, given that it was funded by the public sector. So the different ways to do that could be Again, depending on which sector we're looking at, but we mentioned before pharmaceuticals, the price system of the drugs should reflect the public contribution. In the U.S., it's over $32 billion a year that the public sector spends. There could be conditions on reinvestment, the massive share buybacks that we see today in the IT sector, you know, Apple with its $100 billion share buyback scheme. That level of share buyback, which means that in the last 10 years, $4 trillion have been used share buybacks of the Fortune 500 companies. Many companies are spending close to 100% of their net income on a combination of share buybacks and dividends. So they're actually dipping into their capital reserves. That would be fine, again, if the companies really were just siloed, doing their own thing. But given the immense public benefit that they're receiving, there could be conditions on the reinvestment. And that itself would be a public return for the public investment to make sure that funds are going back into the system. This is, in fact, where Bell Labs came from. Very innovative R&D laboratory inside at and came from a period in history where the government forced at and to reinvest the profits back into innovation and big innovation. And that's not so far-fetched. That's the whole point of having conditions attached in order to have a more symbiotic mutualistic ecosystem. Another thing could be on the patents, as I mentioned. The intellectual property rights today should be much more actively shaped in ways that produce a public return, and the public return on the patents is more diffusion and more deployment once the patent period is over. But if in the meantime you've patented all the upstream research tools and allowed patents to be abused for strategic reasons, then actually that diffusion doesn't happen afterwards.
0: Let's go back to that point you were making on Apple. How would you go about encouraging them, forcing them, cajoling them to invest in new innovation and research or productive activities rather than handing it back to their shareholders?
1: Well, I mean, there's different ways one could do that. The first, by the way, and I just didn't get to that last example with the risks and returns, we could have innovation funds that are fed by also private companies, but then also administered if you want publicly. So a public innovation fund where companies like Google, you know, the Google algorithm was funded by the National Science Foundation. Every technology that makes our eye products, the Apple products, smart and not stupid, were basically funded by the public sector. I already mentioned internet, GPS, but also Siri, touchscreen. Apple received an early stage public fund from the SBIC, which is a program in the U.S. government. So there could be common funds that these companies plow a percentage of their profits back into in order to fuel the kind of innovation that they need. Of course, it could just come from the tax structure. But, you know, we can have both. We don't just have to have one. So it's not about telling Apple what kind of innovation it needs to do. Then that would stifle innovation if the government's going around telling companies what to innovate in. But it does mean that there could be much stronger publicly set goals and think about You know, goals also around the welfare state, all the different things that the welfare state does, (laughs) including public education, including public health systems. And we could have prize schemes. We could have, again, moonshots in each of those areas. So the kind of SDGs but interpreted around what the state does in any given country and have the relationship between business and government be focused on these broadly defined areas that can really improve citizens' lives. So instead of just giving out tax incentives, whether it's through the patent box or R&D tax incentives or money for small-medium enterprises, or all the different benefits that these large companies like Google and Apple get from the state, it could be conditional on those funds being steered, not for a specific solution, because again, then you would stifle the innovation, but directed towards broadly defined challenges.
0: The companies are already doing this in a non-systematic, haphazard way, performing some of the functions that government, you would traditionally assume, would be doing themselves. So... Recently, I mean, Google announced that they were going to put a lot of money into affordable housing in California, that they're putting a lot of money into education, into infrastructure. Well, these were yeah. functions that, of the government before. That
1: brings it? us back to the Middle Ages. That's how the Middle Ages worked. You had the hmm. kings and the queens having their pet projects and deciding every now and then to give more money here or there, wanting to also seem very charitable. Then what we had <laughs> to progress away from that was a peer-reviewed process. So we would have governments having a properly functioning taxation system. And then it's not that a civil servant would decide, oh, we're going to spend money in that type of science or that type of science. But there was peer-reviewed systems funded by public funds that would basically steer innovation, whether we're talking about biotech, nanotech, fusion. So it's really worrying, I think, that in an era of massive financialization, Of industries so focused on their share price, for example, which then creates these short-term returns, an era of massive tax evasion and tax avoidance, that then these surplus funds, these massive cash piles, are being used to partly at least solve different problems that we have in society, but in this very random pet project kind of way. I don't think that advances inclusive growth, because who decides what areas around hunger and inequality (laughs) or focused on, but also is bad for innovation.
0: Yeah. In the report that you just produced for the EU on mission-oriented research and innovation, one of the points that you make is that regulation should very much be targeted at spurring innovation rather than raising barriers to entry. How do you go about doing that?
1: First of all, historically, regulation has often spurred innovation. So, you know, innovation is also about change. And if you can make money just by working in your status quo way, then you might not think about how to make money in new ways. So regulation by setting standards, for example, of working conditions, of toxins in our food, has forced companies to then think differently and to come up with new solutions. So we know that almost by definition, regulation, if it's about also not just nudging in some ways, forcing companies to behave differently in order to meet some public goals around health and other areas, has historically then forced them to invest in new solutions. If we see regulation just as stopping a company from doing something, as opposed to creating that interesting new direction by saying, no, what we need is less dirty brown industries but greener ones, and kind of broadly defining what that area might look like, that itself would be an example of a regulation which is spurring innovation because you're making it very well known that you need new solutions because the current state of play is creating something bad. But if it's just about taxing, for example, that would never be enough.
0: Okay. And part of the recipe, as it were, that you prescribe is that we need more patient, strategic, long-term capital. It's one thing to set the missions, but we also need the means to deliver that. And you've also just been talking about the financialization of large parts of our economy with this emphasis on the short-term So how do we change the time horizons? How do we get this patient capital? Is that a function of government or can we incentivize the private sector as well in order to be more patient in the returns that it is expecting?
1: I think definitely both. We currently have a tax system which is actually rewarding short-termism over long-termism. We still don't have a financial transaction tax. That's a no-brainer. Of course, it has to be global. And we do lots of global things, but we just haven't decided to do that one. We have capital gains tax structures, which are not very smartly devised. In fact, in the UK, they reduced the time that private equity had to be invested in order to receive a capital gains tax reduction from 10 years to two years. This was actually under Tony Blair. In theory, that was to attract more capital to do great things, but all that did was create more short-termism. In many countries, capital gains is too low as a tax. But again, the structure of it matters even more. So part of it is around the tax structure. If we want long-termism, then make it more profitable to be long-term than short-term. But we also need different types of patient forms of finance. So we recently worked in Scotland, for example, to set up a new public bank. Public banks have historically, when well-structured, been able to provide that patient long-term finance to companies that were willing to invest in difficult areas full of uncertainty but they themselves have to be structured properly if a public bank ends up being a handout machine then it creates other problems it might solve the long-termism problem but then it creates the capture problem so you know governance of public institutions matters a lot but the other thing is you know if the private sector is going to be short-termist like the venture capital sectors as a part of finance it's very driven by exits they want the exits to occur in 3 to 5 years first it's very important to warn against that because in science-based sectors like biotech, but also clean technology today, that's very dangerous. You end up getting lots of rushed IPOs. So a colleague of mine calls this plepos, productless IPOs in biotech that didn't do it much good. But also if some funds insist system being short-termist, then we need to be sure that the rewards that are being earned are in proportion to the actual risk taken. And this comes back to the earlier point about making sure that we're not just socializing risk, but also socializing rewards, but also making sure we recognize where these sources of high-risk finance are coming from. And the really key issue is that finance isn't neutral. There's often a rush, again, coming back to the sustainable development goals. One might say, oh, we need more finance to finance the goals. And really, we have plenty of finance, but it's the wrong kind of finance.
0: Final question. Do you think you're winning the argument?
1: Well, it depends where. I mean, as you know, I've been working closely with the European Commission and after a report that I wrote on missions, it became a legal instrument. It was actually voted on by the Parliament and the Council and that was very encouraging. So the Horizon programme now, which is 100 billion euros, has a big chunk of it directed towards missions, which is basically saying, let's stop just babbling about the challenges and turn these into concrete moonshots. Of course, it will still have the basic research through the ERC. And... Also, at the national level, we've worked closely with Greg Clark here in the U.K. to steer the industrial strategy towards these missions and the idea there being don't just make a list of sectors, as the U.K. and many countries often do, sectors to support. So, you know, financial services, creative industries, automotive, aerospace, life sciences, to do what? Because you're a public institution, you should be worried about the what, what are you trying to do, and really getting as many sectors as you can to innovate, to invest, to achieving different goals around clean growth, future of mobility, healthy aging. And so in these areas, yes, I mean, we've had quite a bit of impact. I think what's harder is changing the narrative and the discourse I really think it requires something as ambitious as the Mont Pelerin Society had for the free market with Hayek and, you know, all these different philosophers and economists. We really need to make it almost a cultural movement because it requires new frameworks, but also new ways to talk about the systems that we have. And that's harder because it's much more difficult to actually go back and look at all the things that go wrong along the way and how it ends up being a power relationship of who can describe themselves as a value creator.
0: I've heard the argument that this often goes in very long term cycles, a 30 year cycle. So we had the neoliberal economic revolution of the Thatcher Reagan era that free markets were the answer to everything. And that's obviously running out of steam. The global financial crisis almost buried that as a completely dominant ideology. Do you think we are at the beginning of a new upswing of a new form of ideology that is more conducive to this partnership model that you're talking about?
1: Maybe, but we only have 12 years left. So we better do it much more quickly. We don't have actually 30 years. We definitely don't have 50 years to solve the climate problem. And if we can't solve the climate problem, all these other problems we've been talking about are really secondary. And with that urgency in mind, we should really be mapping out not only the goals themselves, that's about the direction, but how to get the system, how to get the relationships right. And that is both a practical question, but also a philosophical one. And making this, as much as possible, a debate, just as there's debates in the town halls when there's election campaigns, we really need to think, how can we do capitalism differently?
0: 12 years. Right, we better get on with it. Thank you very much, Mariana. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.